Every day, NearMap helps thousands of users conduct virtual site visits for deep, data-driven insights, enabling informed decisions, streamline operations, and better financial performance with access to high-resolution aerial imagery, city-scale 3D, AI datasets, and geospatial tools. Visit nearmap.com government or click on the ICMA link for an extended free trial. Welcome to Voices in Local Government, an ICMA podcast. My name is Joe Superville. Today I'm joined by Enrico Ruiz Esperanza, Brielle Acevedo, and Marissa Crater to explain tiny homes, how local government can bridge the gap from shelter to permanent housing. Thanks for joining today. Glad to be here. Quickly on titles, uh, Eureka is the Community Service Supervisor of the City of Baldwin Park. Baldwin Park is kind of um, the hub of the San Gabriel Valley at there as part of LA, which we'll get into a few more details here in a minute. Marissa, Executive Director of the San Gabriel Valley Council of Governments and Regional Housing Trust. COG, as we're going to refer to it as we keep going, is kind of the agency. And Braille, the Housing Trust Manager of the same organization. So again, I really appreciate your time. These three also gave an excellent session at ICMA Annual Conference in Columbus. It is available on demand. The podcast webpage will have a link to that. And if you were not able to attend, you can still register for digital access to that and other great sessions. So before we get into the Valley there and the COG and some of the details, for others listening who might be skeptical from the start, like, hey, that's LA. They are huge. Their budget's huge. Their population's huge. Even their perceived problem with the homeless is even bigger than other locations. A big part of your presentation, what we want to cover today is scalability. How does this tiny homes program scale to other locations that are also, regardless of the exact scope, facing similar challenges? Sure. I actually think that was really what inspired us to take this approach with the tiny homes. You know, we are part of the County of Los Angeles, which has 10 million residents. So it's it's enormous. So the San Gabriel Valley has 2 million residents and we have 31 cities. So the individual cities in our region are much smaller and much more similar to cities um, across the country. And the size of the um, population of people experiencing homelessness in cities, again, is smaller. So we have a range of, you know, some cities only have five people experiencing homelessness up to maybe, I think our maximum is about 500 in some of our larger cities. So we had been told before that it was not financially uh, reasonable to have a shelter with less than 100 beds, that it wouldn't pencil out. But we, we knew that that was far too large for any of our cities and, and too big of an ask. So that's where we came across this concept of doing the tiny homes and being able to create a model that was um, financially uh, viable at, at 25 uh, beds. So that was something we worked really hard on to make something that was scaled to the right size of our cities. And, and part of it is the cost of the individual units. But then we also just really worked hard on the service delivery model to make sure that it was comparable to a, a larger congregate shelter. Okay. So it's not, this is not downtown LA. It's not even necessarily the immediate suburbs. The, I don't want to say outskirts, but the, the valley there is comparable to other normal locations across the country where, um, as you said, a hundred bed facility maybe in the past was kind of that marker like that's the only way to make it financially sustainable but then that was maybe too big for a lot of locations so this is the solution which is exactly why it's scalable so from there can you give the quick version again this this is in the session and the even the powerpoint that's available but what is a tiny home i mean i think people can do the math and figure it out but can you give us some specifics on the square feet heating cooling locking doors that kind of thing like what actually is it physically in in these sites that have 25 of them Sure, I can take that. So 
Our tiny homes for individuals are eight by eight, so roughly 64 square feet. They include a bed and a desk and some shelving. Also outlets for clients to be able to charge their laptops or their phones. They have an overhead light. They have AC and heat, a fire extinguisher and a smoke detector. And then, as you mentioned, a locking door, which we have been told is just so life-changing for people to be able to come inside and really get a good night's rest without worrying about someone entering their tent or otherwise being able to access them when they're most vulnerable. Um, At our family site, our um, tiny homes are larger. They're about eight and a half by 17 or 144 square feet. Okay. And you said it there. It's it's not just about the stats or even the cooling. The sense of security and the literal being more secure is something that is maybe the biggest deal of all and is, is the first step to bridging that gap to permanent housing or making people secure enough to, to progress. So how, Eureka or anyone else, can you, I think the math was mentioned a little bit, but how did you make the math work on cost per unit? So when we first started, we offered this as a one-year pilot program to, per- to cities that were interested in participating. So the city of Baldwin Park ended up hosting our first project, Esperanza Villa, and we allocated $500,000 to that project, which ends up being about $25,000 per unit. And the way that these costs break down, it's just under $9,000 for the tiny home unit that we use at that site, which is a pallet shelter. Um, and then it also includes the communal spaces. So the restrooms and the offices, uh, we have a dog run at that site, um, some of the additional features, so dining tables, but really the way we broke down the cost um, was based on some of the really important ratios. So the reason this site is 25 units is because the best practice is to have a one to 25 ratio between your case manager and your participants at the site. Um, And then another figure we talked about in our presentation too is the best practice ratio with the restrooms. So you want to have a one to 15 or better ratio for the restrooms. So Those numbers really help you back into how big you're going to make your site. If you want to go 50 beds, you need two case managers, um, and then, you know, you would need to divide by 15 to determine your restrooms. Yeah, I think just like one thing to really keep in mind and how we were able to achieve um, that incredible, you know, $25,000 unit cost um, was first of all, I do want to mention the city did donate the land. It was land that was already owned by the city, so we didn't have any land costs associated with this project. But additionally, um, for any city thinking about this, site selection is incredibly important. Um, So having a flat surface where you don't have to spend a lot of money uh, grading it to be flat and ability to connect to utilities, that's where you're going to achieve, in our experience, the most savings. So you want to have a place where you can easily access electric, uh, gas, and sewer and water because those are the costs that are going to weigh outscale the in, the cost of the actual housing unit. So when you're thinking about a site, you want to make sure that all of those are are relatively easily accessible. So that math all works out, but the funding itself, is there a mix from the county, the city, the individual cities or towns? You mentioned the the measure H tax in your presentation. Where where's the actual money come from both to build the site but then ongoing operations? Sure. So we got it. We were fortunate enough to receive a state earmark from our senator, Senator Susan Rubio, um, and she really believed in the work that we were doing at the Regional Housing Trust. So we were able to use that funding to fund the capital costs and the first year pilot. 
I think because of the success that we were able to demonstrate, the fact that we were able to have the site operational and be able to operate it at about $85 a day per participant, um, we convinced the county to develop a countywide program for these types of sites for operations. So for the second year, we received approximately $800,000 to uh, continue to operate the site from the county through a mixture of different funding sources that they were getting. But um, I think that really spoke to um, us being able to prove that this was a, a financially viable model. Okay. Eureka, can you give your take on how it worked at Baldwin Park, your role in the process, and then all, also how that can be replicated elsewhere? Of course. I think it really starts with our leadership. Um, we do have a very supportive city council and a multidisciplinary team in the city of Bowdoin Park. Um, that includes uh, many administrators, public works, uh, director of community services and recreation. You have PD, um, you have uh, the planning division and economic development, as well as housing. This team really came together to address the need for interim housing in our city. And one of the things that I think it's really important um, and could be, can help to address the scalability in other communities is uh, attending to the needs of your individual city. So this program really allowed, because it was a pilot program and part of this innovative process, it really allowed the city to dive in on some of the specifics that were needed in our community. So addressing the individual population uh, was primarily one of our first goals because of our um, homeless count, which was uh, very high for individuals. And then moving into our second site, um, we also we also identified families um, needing a huge need for interim housing. So I think that, you know, when communities are thinking about this is really addressing what is uh, required, what is um, wanted in your community and engaging in that process. So engaging residents very early on. Um, so the city really took on this project from a very uh, local perspective. We really wanted to ensure that our local residents were part of the, of the project. And um, this really made it possible for other communities and other cities around our region to start thinking about how um, when we all work at one task together, we can really have an impact. So other cities like Montebello and, and of course, round two with our city of Baldwin Park, we have really stepped up and addressed local homelessness. So um, we are incredibly proud the city, um, the, the entire team is just excited about what these opportunities can bring uh, to our residents and how locally we are making a huge impact with our regional and countywide homeless uh, issues. Yeah, the, I, it's clear how enthusiastic all three of you are, and I, I can imagine everyone else that was involved. But on the other hand, it, it probably does get complicated when there are that many entities involved, the kind of proverbial like red tape of local government bureaucracy can become a factor. So how did you avoid that or overcome that? Well, one thing that we kind of stole from our, we have a, a really big construction authority and we do grade separations and hundred $100 million um, projects in transportation. So something we use in our capital projects department that we brought over to this was our um, weekly delivery team meetings. And I think that was critical. So all the representatives from each department and from the COG and the trust that were involved in some aspect of the project, we all met every single week 
and we kept ourselves accountable. And then that was our opportunity to communicate. So, you know, Eureka and Brielle were working on the um, procurement for the service provider. And then we had Sam and the public works team, you know, doing all of the site prep. And every week we talked about issues, challenges. We had a delay happening on the electrical panel. What we were going to do, was that going to affect the opening? And I think that was a really great way for us to um, kind of collaborate, work together and, and solve challenges. And I actually think it was really beneficial to have multiple agencies because it helped us something that we might be quicker at. Um, we took the lead on. So if we felt like we might be more uh, able to quickly do a procurement and go through our process to do an RFP, then the COG took the lead on that. But if the uh, city of Baldwin Park already had a vendor that was able to do XYZ and they could just add to that contract to have work done there, we had them be the lead on, on painting or whatever. So I think we actually benefited from having multiple agencies rather than it being a hindrance. I think that we needed part of this pro project was a very innovative approach. So we needed new ways um, and rethink government, right? So um, that collaborative governance piece is really what made probably this and other projects that have evolved as a, as a result of this initial project um, to address homeless services is really engaging everyone at the table from the state to the county to um, our regional partners at the COG and the trust. Um, as well as other local cities, we we need to rethink how we do things in government. And sometimes it is that um, lack of or lack of timeliness to get these projects out. But with this, we were able to turn it over in about six months, which is impressive. Um, and uh, having everyone at the table engage in that collaborative governance model really just took it a different direction, right? When before it was a very top-down, bottom or bottom-up approach, this time around it was like very, it, it just engaged so many different players that uh, it really was a true collaboration across the agencies. And of course, needing to balance out that um, dynamic around who, you know, we, we took a stab at it. All of us took a really honest and great stab at, at ensuring that this project would work. So that's really what, what made us, uh, I think, successful and, and can encourage other cities and counties um, to think outside the box because we really do need outside, you know, of our regular process solutions to address this uh, huge, huge problem. Yeah. And I, I, I laughed a little bit when I even used the word bureaucracy because that implies this like nameless, faceless government. But when you actually start talking to individuals like the three of you, you can see the care that's put into it and the energy and the time. And that that's different. And the collaboration sounds great, but still, did the COG have the authority over the budget and deadlines and decision making? Like collaboration is great, but ultimately there still has to be deadlines and assignments given and accountability. So how, how did you balance that? Um, Marissa, as executive director, did that fall on you? Not fall on you like, you know, you're the dictator of the whole thing, but how did you balance like the input from so many locations and agencies with decision making that still at some point there has to be an individual or a small team making those calls? Yeah. And I, I again would say that's really where the delivery team group um, was, was the key piece of how we were able to get it done. We had set an opening target date. And so we worked backwards from there, backwards, um, yeah. but we had a memorandum of agreement between the two agencies, but we did leave it a little bit more flexible than we have in other instances, because we knew that you know, the COG or the trust might be the lead um, contracting agency on certain items and Baldwin Park might be uh, on others. 
every purchase that Baldwin Park did would got ended up being approved through the housing trust and they had a set budget that Brielle spoke to. But I really honestly think it was it was truly collaborative. Like we talked about every issue and it was like we need to buy, you know, for love of we need to buy outdoor furniture to be able to have a dining area. That's gonna cost X. How does that fit into our budget? Are we able to save money other other places? What what can we move around in order to uh, achieve the opening by the date that we wanted to um, and be able to get all of the elements that we wanted? And can we get other stuff donated? So we really, truly worked as a team more so almost than any other project that I've done where it was like the the six or seven of us that regularly came, came to delivery team came to decisions about how everything was going to be done. So you kind of gave the explanation on, on the actual tiny house itself. Brielle, can you give a little bit more on the full site? One of the goals was reducing the service calls in that same area. Can you explain a little bit more about the site itself and the participants? Specifically, one question is, how are the selections made? Is that part of your team? Sure. So we worked with the city to identify the site. And as you mentioned, it's a city-owned parcel. It used to be a space where they stored some of their um, e-waste, I believe. So it was a public works yard. And this site was also perfect because it had been identified as part of the homelessness point in time count as an area that was a hotspot. So it meant that there was a lot, there were a lot of individuals experiencing homelessness within this area. It's across the street from the Walmart, which used to have a 24-7 parking. So it was kind of a natural gathering space for people that were maybe living out of their cars or, or otherwise unhoused. So the location since it was city owned and since it was, you're really bringing this resource to the people that need it. That's how it was selected. Um, It's kind of a long and a little bit thinner site. So we really made sure to develop the site in a way that really maximized its potential. So when you walk in, it's the security booth and immediately behind there is the restrooms and the laundry so that they have um, oversight of those communal areas. And then going out from there are all of the individual units There's a dining area and a dog run at the back. I really just wanted to remove all of the barriers to housing that we could. So wanted to people that had a pet to be able to come inside and and not feel like they're making the choice between shelter and their animal. And in terms of selecting participants for the site, it does depend on your funding source. So that was the really great part about Uh, the trust being the funder was we didn't have to go through quite as many layers of red tape and using sort of the countywide system or, or another process. So really it's a first come first serve resource to clients that are experiencing homelessness within the city of Baldwin Park. So referrals go through our service provider at the site, which is Volunteers of America, and they maintain a wait list. So as soon as a unit opens up, we're able to pull the next client from the wait list and get them moved in. And some of the responsibilities for participants entering the site is that they need to be able to handle their activities of daily living. So to be able to shower by themselves, feed themselves, otherwise take care of themselves and not need to be in a different type of facility. And that they work with Volunteers of America on their housing plan, right? This is interim housing and we're so, so grateful to get people indoors, but ultimately we want to get them into their forever homes. So that's the other requirement is that they work with the service provider to achieve those goals on their permanent housing plan. Do you have a target? I don't want to say turnaround, but is there a range or a time frame that's not necessarily a hard rule or kick people out, but a goal 
as this is intended as a transition from homelessness to permanent housing, is there a timeframe that you target? Sure. So I'll kick this one off and then have Marissa um, add to it. But basically, 90 days was our original goal. Um, We wanted clients to have enough time to settle in and start working on their housing plan and services plan. We did get some clients moved out really quickly. We were surprised to find out that a majority of the initial residents were actually senior women. And it was really awesome to get two of them housed within the first, you know, 120 days or so. We have since encountered some difficulties based on some discrepancies between voucher rent and median rent in Baldwin Park and a couple of um, other issues like credit checks. But I would love for Marissa to give a little more background on on what the COG's doing to address those issues. Yeah, so I, I think kind of touching a little bit on what you were both saying is that I, I want to highlight that this is just one of a suite of solutions that we're working on to help people experiencing homelessness. But on this particular case, you know, this is the first step. It's to get them stabilized and indoors and start working on a housing plan. But we know that that's not the end. We want to get them into a permanent location. We do have challenges. LA County is a very difficult rental market. And the um, amount that is reimbursed from the voucher and the average cost of apartment, it's a, it's a razor thin margin. And so we're often finding that the voucher is $100 less than the cost of units that we can find. Uh, additionally, you know, people experiencing homelessness, they have they can have a lot of difficult experience in their life. And it's hard for them to just send them out and say, hey, go find, here's a voucher, go find an apartment. So one of the things that we're working on now is housing linkages to do that difficult work to help help them find apartments because they may not know the process of like going on Craigslist, going on the internet, finding apartments. How do they easily get to apartments, make open house time? So we're doing that kind of really, really on the ground work. And also importantly, having either uh, service provider staff or city staff, whoever it may be, go with the participants to the um, to the sites, uh, to the units, because it's often like clients may not present well. You know, they might be very, very nervous when they're talking to a landlord. So helping convince the landlord to take a chance on a client and, and understand what a voucher is, that this is actually guaranteed income for rental payments. And having that level of comfort is something where having a service provider or a city staff person go out with the participant is really critical. So that's a new area that we're working on. And we've seen some incredible success um, working with Baldwin Park and Montebello and in taking that much, much more hands-on approach, even though the systems exist, the vouchers exist, that doesn't necessarily get people into homes. So we're doing that really, really on the ground work to help people. Eureka, I was going to ask, can you give an example um, from Baldwin Park there about the community outreach? Because again, it's a sensitive subject and residents, citizens, they want to help and they they're they're mindful of this, but also there's some stereotypes or pushback, like, yes, let's help them, but I don't necessarily want that near my neighborhood or next door to me, which is difficult. And then uh, Marissa was was mentioning the landlord outreach, but can you, how did that go in Baldwin Park? Absolutely. So we, the city of Baldwin Park started to engage in the um, city's implementation plan since 2018. So from the very beginning, we had um, everyone at the table. We had what was called like a 360 um, stakeholder model input process. So we literally went out to the community, 
engaged everyone. We wanted to hear both the positive and the negative um, of what, you know, what homelessness looked like to them, their experience with it, um, even the ones, you know, not in my backyard. Um, we really wanted to hear it all. We wanted to hear from the school district, this faith-based community, um, our city leaders, our residents, and even people f- with lived experience uh, about their experience uh, being homeless in Baldwin Park, sometimes for generations. Um, others for, you know, that that it, because we are the hub of the San Gabriel Valley, uh, people that were just kind of tr- what we call we consider like transitional homelessness that they're just kind of going you know from city to city we have a metro link which is like a big kind of uh, location where people just uh, travel through our city so community really a- community engagement really took on its kind of own place in this project I think that we through that engagement, we were able to offer a variety of different platforms where where um, these groups can engage. So we did start um, this project during the pandemic, which was also very difficult to do. Um, but we offered uh, virtual uh, virtual classes or virtual workshops that allowed them to know who was going to be in the project. So um, our first session was who's next door, right? And really talked about like who will be living there, debunking some of the myths around what the site could possibly look like. We did um, uh, take time to educate the community about non-congregate shelters and not um, that it was not going to be something like where people had to line up outside of the project. It was not going to be an attractor. It hasn't um, and it it really uh, our community engagement program really allowed us to learn the best practices, like what the community actually wanted from the program. Um, with the lived experience, we we learned that we do have a lot of seniors that are experiencing homelessness in our community. So um, and then that we also found an amazing just group of supporters. Uh, that were not only were supportive of the site, but are actually engaging in ongoing volunteer opportunities, donations from as small as like the Girl Scouts to senior programs that are kind of coming together um, in a true sense of community to support the projects, both um, the individual Esperanza Villa, as well as uh, Serenity Homes. So we're super excited about that. And we have found that it does take that community approach. So in terms of like engaging landlords, uh, creating those housing linkages, it has to be once again at the local level because, you know, uh, relying on just kind of these uh, systems that exist within our our overall kind of LA County COC, um, it's a great way to tap into them. But we also know that, you know, nothing beats that kind of, personal referrals and, and, and getting landlords that perhaps uh, may have a back unit or an extra room in their, in their, in their homes. So we are very excited about the housing linkage uh, program, which will create an opportunity to continue that local uh, community engagement to ensure that we uh, move people from the interim housing sites into their uh, permanent housing solution. Yeah. And there are other complementary programs. I know workforce development, food recovery, recreation, crisis intervention. These are the things that are essential to complete that bridge. It's not just a matter of where the physical house or permanent housing is. It's all these other things that come into play to actually help the people move forward. 
Thanks for all that background information. I, I suppose for the for the listeners who are still early on in the process, whether they want to replicate this closely or just have kind of parallel programs, what are some lessons learned that you can share with them that you wish you knew when this started a couple of years back? You know, even not necessarily just what went smoothly, but what went wrong, unexpected hurdles, just anything you want people just starting out to know now. I know um, site selection was one on my list I wanted to make sure we brought up, but any Anything else or details there that you can share your experience with the audience? I want to say the supply chain issues are real. And I really want to credit Baldwin Park for being creative. But we we literally could not get the type of paint that we needed to paint the asphalt. And we couldn't be stuck to a very specific color selection for it because we had to sign up to say, those colors that we wanted for the paint are not available. And if we stick to exactly what was in the design, we're going to delay six weeks. Um, We also had different shelters get stuck on a a cargo ship in the middle of the ocean. So we switched vendors (laughs) sort of midway through and we've had both vendors are both great, but we had to switch which ones we use at this site. So we were very much impacted by supply chain. Also with electrical panel, that was another challenge. And again, shout out to public works for being very creative and being able to use an oversized panel and make that all work. But I think the overall from all that is just, you know, we say like relentless optimism, like don't let that get you down and give up. Okay, that happened. And that's terrible that those pallets or whatever are stuck in a boat, but we're going to move on and we're going to keep going and we're going to get something different and we'll be fine and we can, we can do it. So everything is not going to be super, super easy, but it's doable and be creative. And this is your chance to like do something so incredible that you just have to keep pushing. So I think that's sort of like our lesson learned about it was, you know, you have to be flexible because you're building a site, you're trying to build it quickly. So you're going to use what you can and, and just be willing to change things on the go as you need to. Brielle, did you have any lessons learned? I do. So Eureka added the really positive side of community engagement, and I can't stress how important it is to really get out there. I think having those in-person site tours was really critical, but something we learned at a different project that didn't proceed forward was how important it was to get ahead of the message. So there had been some discussion just during the application phase of, oh, the city is considering turning in an application for this pilot program. And a certain population of the community got wind of it, started putting out some messaging, you know, those platforms like Nextdoor that can turn negative really quickly. So really making sure that when this was brought to council or even before that materials were made available that were true fact sheets that really showed what the project was going to look like. And also that those are made available in the languages spoke within that community. So we are going to talk more about this later, but we have a resource which is basically just a repository of all of the documents that we put together. We want to make this easier for other communities. So that also includes those fact sheets and community engagement materials. So it's just super helpful to get out ahead of this and then to continue to engage the community as you're going. So ongoing volunteer opportunities. We were really, really thrilled to see some residents that had potentially been against the project during the community engagement process, attend the city council meeting and actually be in support of the project after really getting all of those hard-hitting questions off their chest and learning more about what it was going to look like. And 
very proud of the um, Baldwin Park Police Department data, which shows that calls for service in the area are down since the site opened. Yeah, this is all to help others, but there can be um, the skeptical resident. Ultimately, this is supposed to help everyone. It's supposed to improve the full community, reduce those service calls, make make it safer for everyone. So I don't I don't think it's unfair to bring that up or ask those questions. I mean, like you said, once, even if it's uncomfortable, once those questions are asked, they can be answered and the skeptic can be turned around into a supporter um, because it really does help everyone. We definitely tackled that question of property values and some fears around what the site would look like. And I know we can't think public works enough, but they created the most beautiful entryway fence for the site. It's wood paneled, it's uplit. You would not know what the site was um, if you you know, didn't actually know what it was, but this can be a resource to the community. It beautified what was once a site that just had a chain link fence around it. And I think we were able to really assuage those concerns about this being a a blight or or, um, otherwise detractor for the community. Eureka, what was your main takeaway, especially from the city side? And um, our audience always likes hearing about like, well, how did you deal with council? Because that's not always easy. What were your main takeaways or lessons learned? Yeah, lessons learned from uh, the city is really to engage your leadership, right? Engage council early on. We had a series of study sessions uh, that uh, walked through the project. We uh, were able to leverage technical assistance from the trust in terms of uh, ensuring that all of the information, the architectural support, the community engagement process was very transparent, that uh, we uh, we're very kind of in this together in terms of creating solutions that we worked across different agencies and different partners to ensure that we addressed the unhoused community um, in our in our city. So, uh, count you know, council was a true champion our in in our effort to get the site up and running, and not only just one site but two in a matter of just one year. So I know um, they are uh, very proud of of the work that we have been able to accomplish with these uh, tiny homes. Yeah, you said a phrase there. I think city and county managers probably perked up. You said council was our champion. So they don't have to be the enemy or like the adversary to get things done. In this case, if you show them the math works and obviously the cause is important, I think, I don't want to say easy, but I think people will get on board and the, the elected officials can be an ally, not side that that makes it difficult. Really just two more questions. Marissa covered this a little bit and even even Eureka there, but how do you kind of balance the humanity on this topic compared to that what can be cold math on this is the budget, this is how many people are homeless, this is how many maybe we think we can help in a year, two years, five years. I think feedback I see May has received in the past on the on this topic is a little bit of hey just let the politicians deal with it. It's also been a little bit of this is so overwhelming and even depressing. The numbers don't seem to work out. And then we're talking about numbers, but these are still real people. It's almost a rhetorical question, but how how do you three balance that um, in a nutshell, which you've kind of covered as we've talked over this last half hour plus, but it, it seems difficult. And for the people listening who haven't started yet, might be one reason they're, they haven't yet. So how can they overcome that? Well, well, one thing, when you talk about like the actual costs, so we've done a ton of different um, homeless programs and a typical way that a lot of cities 
deal with um, trying to help people experiencing homelessness and, and having them kind of in a holding pattern until we can get them a voucher is to place them in a motel. And when you compare the cost of this to placing a person in a motel, this is less expensive. I can say that from getting a lot of invoices from cities where you're spending $90 a night just to house the person to no end for, you know, up to six months, you're not getting the meals included in that. And you're not getting the case management. I'm just saying the cost of the room is $90. Then the motels frequently want to hit you with damage charges because they know that they're serving a population, whether or not those damages are real, you're getting, you know, several thousand dollars in room damage charges afterwards. Um, so just from that perspective, this is much less expensive than getting a motel room and placing a client there. So that's like, if you want to look at cold, hard math, like that's the case for doing it. Additionally, you know, we run a lot of programs. Our Montebello program focuses on um, high acuity uh, populations. Those are the same people that the fire department is going out to every day in the riverbed, having them go to the shelter operations, stay safe in Montebello and be able to get them stabilized, get them into outpatient treatment is much less expensive for the city than for the city to be sending a fire department, you know, squad out there into the riverbed to deal with whatever issues are. So if you want to make the financial case, this is the financially much more sustainable thing to do than to be either placing people in motels or leaving them in encampments where you're constantly getting calls for service in the encampments. So is it fair to say a, a city county manager shouldn't or does not have to feel guilty about looking at numbers and not not forgetting that these are people but it, from from what i just took away from that answer was it's not mutually exclusive like you can look at that math and that financial cost and that doesn't mean you don't care about the actual people is that yeah i mean that's accurate? where it's crazy it's like it is both the compassionate and morally right thing to do but it's also the financially logical thing to do like it's incomplete alignment to do these types of projects because it's where you're not having to make that choice between the two. You are treating the person with respect, dignity. You're getting them help. You're helping them deal with their trauma, but you're also saving a lot of money on the city service provision side. Okay. So resources, Brielle mentioned them earlier. We're going to link everything on the podcast page and on the ICMA webpage. In addition to that, your website is sgvrht.org slash tinyhomes. Um, and that has some examples and some success stories that people can check out. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, the Tiny Homes conference session and slide deck that goes with it is available on demand through December 31st of 2022. Anyone who missed conference can still register for the digital on demand. It'll be available. The last question is, aside from those resources, what is the one step city county manager? You've convinced me I want to either do the Tiny Home project specifically or something very similar who is my first phone call? What is the next thing I have to do? So I'm not sitting on this for three months. What can I do today? So I would say um, there's two things. I, I, can, I can't say one. Two things would be um, from a practical point of view, start getting a list of sites that might work. And again, it doesn't need to be huge sites, but start thinking about site selection. That's super important. Everything else we have for you, all the RFPs, all the specs, everything. We don't have a list of your sites. And then the second thing, kind of related to what Eureka is, is talking about, I would recommend organizing a service activity for your council, other key stakeholders, and try to find another tiny home sort of in or another similar project near you. Go out and do a meal service or some type of activity. That's going to get people really in, 
inspired and excited and might challenge some of the ideas of what they have of what it will be like. There's nothing like going to the site and talking to the residents. So we've done that. And I think that's a really good way to change kind of minds and hearts about it. Brielle? Great. And I would just add to what Marissa said. I'd say that step two is to reach out. So any of us are happy to answer questions. And I think if you are lucky enough to have a tiny home site near you, more likely than not, they're going to be happy to welcome you and show you the site. That was probably step two for our team. We went and we toured the Redondo Beach tiny home site. You learn so many questions just by being there, be able to get on your hands and knees and figure out how they secured the units to the floor or ask questions about why they chose that specific type of office to be used at the site. And each site is a little bit different and and yours will have its own nuances too. But rather than spend a ton of time trying to figure something else out, there are sites like this across the country now, there's even one in Hawaii. So um, reach out to another site, get some feedback, and we are more than happy to help you both with tiny homes. And if you need a regional housing entity, we're always happy to talk housing trust and how you can um, build uh, collaborative assistance across your, your cities and your jurisdiction. Okay, well, Eureka, Brielle, Marissa, thanks for sharing your insight with others in local government, and thanks for the great work you've done in Baldwin Park and the San Gabriel Valley. Appreciate it.